Thank you, Wendy. Thank you. So I think that's the best introduction I ever had. So oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. There's nothing else left to say about me. So you actually even introduced my wife. So that's you covered the whole spectrum of my life right now. So, so as Andy says, I'm spending the whole year here, a year uh, here in U.S. as a part of my sabbatical year. Uh, I'm working with Ross Brownson this year at the Professional Research Center in St. Louis. And I'm so pleased to be here just for two days, but it's a, it's a one in a life opportunity for me to, new, to, met, to meet new people. So between a sort of uh, adjustment problems with the slides in my sort of bad English, I, I apologize if you don't understand some of the things I'm trying to, to raise today. And to be honest, uh, I had a talk yesterday with, with undergrad students, and today I'm going to say the same thing that I told them. I, I don't have any pretension to teach or to, to show anything every, uh, I would say, new. I just want to share with you some of my experiences and, and some of the thoughts I have in terms of the built environment and, and the connections of between, between built environment and social environment. Of course, I'm focusing in Brazil and not the whole Latin America, but by showing Brazil, you're going to have a good picture of what, what, uh, what are the social issues that Latin America is dealing with, what are the social issues that developing countries are dealing with, especially the middle-income countries such as Brazil. And I think by building connections between built and social environment, we can uh, actually do change in the, in the real world. So that's my, my main message here, is not only focusing on the research side of built environment, or, but rather how we can use the evidence to influence policy change. Not that I have done that, but I'm, that's the path I want to pursue the next coming years. And that's probably one of the reasons that I came here this year in the US to study with Ross, because he's, uh, I think, one of the best persons I know in, in terms of policy studies and change uh, for physical activity as well. So the title of my presentation is this. So I'm going to focus in, in the connection I just mentioned. So to, to have a good perspective of that, I'm going to tell you a little story, the story of favelas of Brazil. Favelas is a name we, we use for slums, or very, very low-income populations where they live in Brazil. But favelas is a name that is being recognized now because of the movies that we are showing uh, everywhere. So all the violence, drug-related violence and everything, they passed in favelas in Rio de Janeiro because it's the famous place for favelas as well, not only for carnival, right? So I'm going to tell you the stories of favelas in Rio, and by understanding that story, you're going to understand what are the issues behind the built environment problems we have, and how does it connect with, with social environment. So we see a picture of favela in Rio. It's a beautiful picture, uh, I, I think, because you see a favela, a tiny place, packed of people, uh, tiny houses, packed of people, a huge neighborhood, but people are trying to reinvent themselves. So. We have a live community there. So how does this story begin? So the story of favelas in Brazil, and, I, and uh, that's one of the reasons I want to show this story, is because the story has a connection with the U.S. story as well. The story of favelas in Brazil began with the slavery system we had. So Brazil was the, the country with the most, with the hugest slave population in the world. So it was much bigger than the U.S. We had uh, some stats say that we brought 3 million African residents to Brazil to serve as slaves. Some stats say that we brought 5 million. So that's the hugest. And Brazil was the latest country to end the slavery system in the world. So we not only have a mass influence of, of uh, the slavery, slavery system in Brazil, but we had for a long time in the country. So we have to understand that to understand the context of favelas and the, uh, the social issues we have and the built environment issues. As you can see, the emancipation of Brazil occurred later than in the US. So it, it occurred at once. So we didn't have any preparation for that. We, we didn't have a war, as you guys did, related to that. But we didn't have a preparation as well. So there is no. There, uh, the evidence we have now shows that we didn't have a strong debate on that. We, de we do didn't have a preparation in the political uh, aspects or also in the social aspects. So uh, from one week to another, all these millions of slaves were f freed and they didn't have any jobs, houses, food, uh, anything to, to live with. So because they were living out of the work they were doing for the farms. So 
it's not a matter of just ending uh, this uh, nasty system, but as a matter of how can, what can we do with these folks? So nobody thought about that. Of course, they didn't have jobs. They didn't have places to go. They went to inland or to other farms. They tried to find land that, that were actually free for them to do anything. So they found cheap land. They found places to build. But in northeastern Brazil, which is a very dry area, not very productive in terms of plantation. It's not really good for, for crops, but the cheap was really, uh, the, the land was really cheap and it was, it, nobody actually was using the, the, the land. But they began to gather in small communities and these communities were just full of poor people, not only slaves, but folk that didn't have any jobs in the cities. At that time, Brazil was a very rural area, rural country, it didn't have a very huge industrial system which occurred only after the World War II. So for a long time, Brazil was dependent on crops and plantations. And so, they were, so these communities began to emerge. And one of these communities, and the famous one for us in Brazil, is the community of Canudos, a tiny place in northeastern Brazil, was full of previous slaves and poor people, and it was a, a rich scenario for preachers and uh, salvation of the world type of preachers. So they were gathering people, promising a new land or new hope uh, for a new future. But some of these communities, they began a sort of rebellion against the system. So this rebellion is not a matter of, of a real war, but it was, they were just controlling the land. And of course, the farmers didn't, they didn't like that, right? Because nobody wants to, to see your land being taken away. So they were afraid of that. And they were also carrying this mentality of the slavery system. So with that being said, the government sent militaries there. They killed most of the, the people that were in the rebellion. And they ended the rebellion. But the Canudos, a uh, small agglomerate of people, it's not a city, was built in a hill that, that was full of this flower. The flower is called Flower Favelas, or Favelas Flower. So the hill of favelas was the, probably the first settlement we had when people were fought against the system, but they were massively killed at the time. You see an original picture there. And after ending this rebellion, all these people that were living in the favelas hill, they moved to Rio de Janeiro. And they found cheap land again in the hills. And they came from favelas. So these folks from the favelas began the new settlements. So the folks from favelas be began to be called favelas. So that's why we call them favelas. So I like this story for many reasons, because this shows how complicated it is, the social cohesion, and how it merged with the built environment since the beginning, because they had to find land, cheap land, build houses, and it shapes the city in many ways, as the city of Rio de Janeiro is today, for instance. And also because it's linked with this story not only of slavery, but the huge social gap that we had in the beginning of the country and still stands until today. So we still have a very huge inequality in terms of social issues in Brazil, but everything begins with the slavery system and the lack of preparation for the social change they were about to occur. So the favelas began this way, and the favelas today are like this. This is, this is, the first favela of Rio de Janeiro, um, they call it Providencia Hill or Morro da Providencia. This is the first favela of Rio de Janeiro, the very first one formed by the previous Canudos slaves. And this is the Morro da Providencia today. So, what do you think? That's a very interesting picture, right? Compact, full of people. They're actually living there. When you see this, if you, you, you had a chance to fly over Rio or arrive in Rio, you see all these favelas in the, in the city. That's not a unique problem, a problem unique from Brazil. We have less than 10% of the population living in favelas today, which is not big as it used to be. Ruff, roughly, uh, the estimation that 30% of the population in Latin America lives in favela. So Brazil is not the largest a percentage of people living in favelas are not in Brazil, but in terms of population, because we have more than 200 million inhabitants, we have a, a whole country living in favelas in, Rio, in Brazil. So it's, it's still a social issue because it brings other issues to the whole community, because favelas in Rio, for instance, they are in the hills, but they're, they're close to the richest areas of the, of the city. They are lacking of public services, and they are taken over by, by, by drug dealers, as you probably saw in movies and so on. 
But when we see these pictures, what we don't see is this, and that's the other part of the things. So let's say we want to change the favelas in the built environment there. We have to remember when the city favelas, we don't see only houses and a pattern of, of urban structure. We have to see who are actually living in favelas. So people in favelas, this is a whole new community and a city, a live city that are trying to do the best they can to live. So when you see the houses, you see the faces of the people that actually live in the favelas. And what they do? They do physical activity in favelas. They do a lot of that. Not because they have places to be active, but because they have to be active to live. So they are working in household uh, chores or whatever they need to do, for, for instance, in this picture. Even the kids, they have to do something in this place. They usually don't have parks or urban areas. They are really well structured for, for physical activity. And, but they still play. And I like this picture because the kid here is, is playing with a kite. So kite, right? Uh, so they still find a way to be active. So what I want to raise here with this picture, I want to mention, I want to focus not only in the built environment, but I want to show you that the community is formed by the people's needs, not by only by a top-down approach. If you want to change a community, it's not a matter of just renewing the community or building a park or building a new infrastructure or make a certain part, pattern of, of streets, but we have to listen to what these people actually need in terms of, of, of change. And to be honest, they have better solutions than us many times. So the first picture I showed today with the colorful houses, this is a project that was uh, initiated by a group of uh, favelas residents. They, they are calling this Favela Rio. It's a famous project, project now that is funded by the World Bank now. But it began as a community initiative just to renew their own houses. Because why? They don't want to leave the favelas. See the view they have? <laughs> so they like to live there. They, have, they raised kids there. They have families there. So they don't want to leave this place just to another place. But the government uh, is trying to deal with that, with the federal government, with, with different initiatives. The biggest one is called My Life, My Home. That's a free translation. And if I'm wrong, Lou, maybe you can help me. Uh, the biggest project we have is now not only trying to reinvent or renew these places, but also build new infrastructures. But to build new infrastructures, we have to find cheap land. In cheap land usually is far from the city, right? So what they are doing, they are building these new systems of housing in Brazil, uh, where they put people without any proper housing in these new communities. So as you can see, any resemblance with the US suburbs is not just a matter of coincidence. So that's the same approach we saw in other countries, mainly in US, some parts of Canada, not all. But that's the same pattern we saw 50 years ago here in the US. That's the pattern that the government is pursuing now for low housing systems in Brazil. So these people not only are lacking of services in the original places, but now putting them in better housing, which it, to be honest, is much better than the original ones they have in terms of uh, housing infrastructure for lights, uh, electricity, water system, and everything, right? But you don't see diversity here, you don't see better connection here, you don't see a better uh, system for public open spaces for leisure, for instance. And usually these people have, need to commute by uh, the, the regular transportation system to access uh, public services such as uh, health systems uh, and civic services uh, uh, overall. So the solution is coming, but that's my hypothesis now, and this is one of the projects uh, I'm trying to get funded too, is to examine whether these folks that are moving to these new locations, they are becoming more sedentary, because that's the subject that I'm interested with, and they are developing lack, uh, uh, poor health because of the lack of access to healthcare systems. So that's one of the hypotheses I have now, is that by doing this, we're increasing the quality of life from one side, but we're decreasing for another side. So as you can see, there is no way we can separate built environment in any country for the social environment. And the dynamics that the social environment uh, applies in the built environment uh, uh, transformation. So it's really hard to understand built environment by only applying GIS surveys, uh, 
very traditional rationale for that. Uh, I'm saying that taking the risk of being misinterpreted mis because my, most of my research is with built environment, correlates, very traditional approach, but I just, I'm just realizing that that's not enough to make the solutions work. And that's the first point I want to, to, to make in this talk is that we need to find new solutions and new solutions only emerge when you have new approaches and new approaches, they will very likely help us to understand what is happening in the real world. The complexity we are seeing here in Brazil, it's similar to other countries. So the UN report, the latest report on the urbanization says that not Latin America has around 80% of the population living in urban areas. But the phenomenon is occurring in other parts of the world as well, as I can show you in a few slides. Do you guys understand me just fine? Okay. If you want comment or questions, or it's just fine. You make me feel comfortable. <laughs> so let me put this in the perspective of the world. Here you see a map of the world. And what we did with this map, we just adjust the map to reflect the size of the country uh, by the size of the population. So we included the size of population within the shape of the country. So this, the biggest the country, the biggest the population, and so on. So as you can see, where the people live in the world, they live in, mainly in South America, Africa, in South Asia, and, and some of the Middle East countries. So most of the population actually they do not live in high-income countries. That's not a surprise for most of you, but that tells us what? That if you want to make an, a real change in global health, you have to tackle this issue. Where? In low- and middle-income countries. And the solutions that are emerging only for the high-income countries, we don't know whether the solutions will be applied in the low- and middle-income countries. So that's the first issue you have to think. Then we changed these maps to reflect the percentage of the population living in urban areas in the world. So the size of the country reflects the percentage of the population that actually are living in urban areas, right? So I like this picture because it shows uh, a totally different world, much different than, than the previous map, right? For instance, see Canada, the land of my dear friend Andy. It's a tiny, tiny place now. And U.S. is a small place as well. But now you see Latin America bigger, Africa bigger, Middle East, and a sort of Europe in between. So that's uh, an interesting map because surprisingly after, uh, this is the third time I'm showing this map in, in lectures. So surprisingly, uh, folks think that in South America, in Asia, people live in rural areas. And that's not the fact. Brazil is 90% urban now, 90%. Uh, Latin America is 81%. It's going to be 85 in just 10 years. That's the projection for UN. The same phenomenon is occurring now in, South, in Southern Asia, but in a much rapidly way. So it's going to affect them much rapidly than, than us in Latin America because we are already urban. And you see this, uh, the effects of this you are seeing now, for instance, just a week ago, uh, in Peking, in Beijing, China, uh, they closed the streets because the, the amount of pollution was just uh, way, way above the limits. So for three days, they told employees to stay home just for three days. This was last week, right? So these urbanization uh, effects, they will affect largely the low and middle income countries. So another issue for the global health is to understand the impact of urbanization in, in these places. So we have not only more people living in low and middle income countries, but we have more people living in cities in those countries. So for me, it's a clear connection built in social environments in low and middle income, uh, income countries. That's a connection that matters. And just uh, last couple of years, we, we developed this, this a sort of task force of researchers, 30 researchers. We, we did a series of papers at the Lancet. They, they were, this series was published last year in July. And I'm going to show you some of the results from this series that they, for me, they, they helped me to complement the, the first part of the story. So if you see where people are actually inactive in the world. So the, the, the darker uh, reds are the most inactive, the light blues are the least inactive, right? So if you see this, these two maps, uh, uh, the first one is uh, males and the, the second one is females, so men and women. You're going to see where, where people are in, more inactive 
if we could merge this map with the, the, the second map of the urbanization, you're going to see there's a very good match on that. So you see more people inactive in low and middle income countries, but also in low and middle income countries that are urbanized. So this is not being proved. I did not experiment that. We did not compare the data, but it's pretty much very visual at this point. You can see that people are more inactive in low and middle income countries. So inactivity is one of the major issues in these countries as well, as Pedro Alau showed in his paper. And that's the, one of the, the messages that he, he showed in this paper as well. And another colleague led this paper about well, what's the impact of physical inactivity in, on the number of deaths in the world. So Dr. Aimee Lee for the Harvard University here from the US, she found that almost 10% of the premature deaths are linked to physical inactivity. So almost as much as, as smoking, for instance, for, at least for this data we have now. Just a few weeks ago, another report at the Lancet showed a little different results because used the different surveys. For, for the data, <clears throat> but that's another issue. But anyway, what I think the data of Aimee Lee's paper show that is linked to the, the subject here for this talk is that if you are able to increase activity, what are the countries that will benefit most from this increase of physical activity? So if you are able to make the change and make people more active, who will benefit more? And you see the greater impact occurring, of course, US is there because it's just the cost of, 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 of being active is higher here. But you're going to see the most of low and middle income countries, they will benefit greatly for the change of inactive patterns. So it seems natural that you should invest more time not only understanding those, those countries, but making better actions and more effective actions to increase uh, physical activity in these places. By the way, the light ones, uh, the, the, the white ones, sorry, uh, they are countries without any data in this uh, paper. But then, where is the evidence? Where, are the where is the data emerging from? So Greg Hitt, another colleague here, and most of, I think some of you know him, he led this paper trying to address where are the most effective interventions to increase inactivity, to increase physical activity and decrease inactivity. So then we did this map just to show, to reflect the size of the country and the amount of, inter inter uh, of evidence emerging from these countries, right? And again, a, a whole different world now. Before, bef the, the previous slides showed, for instance, US, a tiny place, Canada, uh, Australia, small countries. Now, the, the most of the evidence we have is actually coming from US, Canada, Europe, and Australia. So we, are, we have tons of evidence about physical activity, especially interventions that could increase physical activity, emerging from high-income countries, almost none from the low- and middle-income countries. We do have some coming from Brazil because of the recent boom we have of physical activity research in Brazil over the last five or six years, but still, it's not enough. So, if you want to solve uh, the problems uh, addressing physical activity globally, you have to focus more not only in understanding what is happening in the urban environment there, but also gathering more evidence about what works in these countries. Otherwise, we cannot be able to provide uh, solutions that work there. So one of the papers, that this is the paper I was more, more uh, focused with, it was led by uh, Adrian Bauman. So we did, we examined what are the correlates of physical activity, right? what correlates better with physical activity. So I'm just showing this second part of the paper where we examined what is correlated with physical activity in low and middle income countries. So after this exhaustive process of getting the evidence in literature, if you, if you guys had that ex experience in the past, you know how funny it is. Uh, we found not much, uh, less than 80 papers published about correlates of physical activity in low and middle income countries. But it's not a surprise. Most of the evidence is related to demographical and biological factors, which is gender, uh, age, uh, and things that we cannot actually make change to increase activity. We can use them to tackle the intervention, to tackle folks better, right? To tailor the interventions towards men, women, older, uh, young people. 
but we cannot change. Things that we can change, they are more related to the psychological behavior, we can influence through the, inter through the interventions, right? But the environmental factors, they, are, they have probably not been studied in those countries. And most of the papers we have, you see here, only 11 papers, right? And we're including here more than 20 years of search on environmental correlates, and most of them with adults. So we really don't know what is correlated with physical activity in those countries, especially when we talk about environmental correlates. So whereas in US, in Canada, and Australia, it seems that it's getting harder and harder to publish papers about correlates. We just talked about that today. We still need more papers about correlates in low and middle income countries, because that's the first exploratory phase of any study, right? What are the correlates? So maybe it doesn't make any sense to have a project funded to examine correlates here, but it does in low and middle income countries because we just don't know what are the correlates. So that's another uh, deficiency we have and that you should understand. So we don't know what works and we don't know what is correlated to physical activity. So we have lots of room to improve in that uh, direction. So it seems that things are getting really complicated there. And, but I think that it's not a matter of understanding, uh, not just a south, south approach, like let's go to the low and middle income countries and apply what we learned there. There, We can learn from the low and middle income countries solutions that can be applicable in high income countries as well. Just uh, one example, uh, over the last 10 years, Latin America has experienced an economical boom uh, almost 15 years now. So the, the, one of the effects we have, the good one, I would say, because we have lots of bad effects as well, is the decrease of the social inequalities, the social gaps. So we are decreasing, decreasing the gaps. Latin America is still the most unequal region in the world. It's, in Brazil, is the third worst country in terms of social equality. The top one is South Africa. But Brazil is really, really bad in terms of social equality by, measured by the Gini index. But if you see US and Europe are actually experiencing the opposite. So the last three reports about social equality in the world, they show that Northern America and Europe are actually increasing the gap. So the whole world now is decreasing the gap, although it's very unequal. So the gap is this way. And in these countries, the gap is tiny, but is going the wrong direction. So, of course, the solutions that we can find in places that are very unequal, they could be applicable in, in, in communities here in US, in Canada, or in Europe that experience higher levels of poverty, lack of access to infrastructure, lack of access to health systems, and so on. So I do believe that the lessons learned in low and middle income countries, they could help high income countries to make their life better uh, as well. So one of the things that we have done to try to, to understand the connections across countries, uh, Andy uh, has mentioned that, is one of the projects is the IPEN studies. We have now uh, two IPEN studies, one with adults, and the second now is about to begin with adolescents. So IPEN began as a consortium of researchers. We didn't have any project before, just had an idea of have, or have some sort of research in 2004. But eventually, we were funded after six rejections in a row in 2009. So, <laughs> and so we were lucky to, to be funded here by the NIH. And we, we knocked in other doors recently for the World Bank and other international organizations. Unfortunately, we still uh, haven't found the right door to knock or the right person to open the door, maybe. So, so IPEN began as a a uh, uh, group of researchers trying to do this. Now we have a common protocol, common measures, and we have lots of questions to raise across countries. We have now 12 countries in the adult study and 50 countries in the adolescent study. So we now are analyzing the data from the adult study. So we are now in the process of beginning the data analysis actually next month. But what I like about IPEN is this. So one of the questions we had before was, can we measure environment or built environment with a common <coughs> protocol and common approach uh, using basically the same methods across countries? So this is just one example that we are, for instance here, we are looking to intersection density, which is one of the measures that is 
well known in the, in the built environment area. So using the same approach, we were able to compare different countries. So that's really unique because that's the this is the first time we were using the same approach with using GIS, a very reliable method for objective measures uh, for, for, to study that. You can see that Colombia is highly dense and New Zealand, is the density is lower. So this is not to provide any evidence of the importance of intersections, but just to, prov to provide you a good example that common measures, they can be used in different countries. And here we have North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and, and, and Australia, uh, and New Zealand as well. Same goes to net residential density. So we are using different, we have more than 50 common measures now, but we are all using the same protocol, not only self-reports, which we, we, we only use, we also use, but using different things. And you can see here, the award is quite different. So Hong Kong is almost an outlier, right, in terms of, of density. And so Australia, New Zealand, US, pretty much similar, uh, but Hong Kong is way more dense. So I guess that tells us that the solution that we will find for US, they are not totally applicable in Hong Kong, right, in terms of built environment. So that's, that's another lesson that we, we will try to learn through the IPEN papers. Another good example, let's say within the same region, let's take Latin America as an example. Here are the three uh, cities uh, where we did the IPEN study, adult study in Latin America. Curitiba, my hometown, Cuernavaca in Mexico, which somebody here knows very well, and, and also Bogota, Colombia. So we are comparing here walkability, one common measure for walkability we are using aqui, aqui, here. I'm mixing Portuguese words with my English. That, this is because I'm getting tired, I guess. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> so uh, common, a common walkability measure here, four different components to measure walkability. And we have clusters based in census tracts and according to the neighborhood's income. So see only Curitiba graphs, for instance, the white ones. If you see Curitiba's graphs, you're going to see that in the low-income neighborhood, the more walkable people are more active. The same applies for the high-income neighborhood, right? So when we did the multi-level analysis, we didn't find any interaction with income, in fact, in Curitiba. That's the other paper that is under review now. So we found that for Curitiba, walkability matters. It's pretty much the same result, result, result we found in US, in Canada, in Australia. But when we examined the same thing in Cuernavaca and in Bogota, we didn't find the same results. So for instance, for instance, in Bogota, the gray graph, we didn't find any difference for walkability regardless of the income. So walkability actually doesn't work in Bogota. But the question is, the, Bogot the, the walkability doesn't work or the way we measure walkability based in conceptions we developed from high-income country, uh, it applies in Bogota. So maybe uh, that's another idea we are developing now with, with our friends from Bogota and Cuernavaca, maybe walkability is a little different there. Maybe that's another way to see things, and not only to apply uh, the, same, the same idea of walkability. And the Cuernavaca, different results as well. So within the same region, we identify the same results. So my hypothesis here for this finding, and this is another developing paper now, we are still trying to develop the theoretical part, because we are not very confident with the data yet. Uh, my hypothesis is that the common factor they, they ha we have here are the measures, but the factor that varies across the, the cities is the way the urban planning was organized. So Curitiba, the urban planning system, the urban planning was put into the policy uh, for more than 40 years now, 40 years. So since 1968 to be more precise. So we have a very good urban planning department in the city, well connected with the city administration, and we were lucky enough for once, for one side, to have the same political group in the cabinet for almost 35 years. So the same policies for urban planning were carried from one term to another term. So we have sustainability of the approaches for policy change or for, for urban change. And we had a very good 
uh, knowledgeable urban planning institute. So that's the factor that we don't have in Bogota in Cuernavaca. So they were more disorganized. So the pattern of growing is pretty much like in Latin America, disorganized. They go where the cheap land is, it grows, then the, the city goes there and try to renew the place. Well, in Curitiba it was different. Everything was well planned in advance. And the pattern of growing we found, in, we see in Curitiba, it's quite similar to the pattern of grow, growing we find in most European cities, in the West European cities, mainly France, uh, uh, Spain, and Portugal. So, and then the findings are quite similar that with those findings we find in Europe. So maybe, and that's a hypothesis, that when the urban planning is sustainable and is taking to work, and the, and the policy chains are using the urban planning to address the issues, maybe we can, we can make the city more walkable or less walkable. But when the city is disorganized, maybe the walkability is not really good to measure how people can commute to walk more. <clears throat> I told you before, I don't have conclusions, just thoughts, maybe. <laughs> you, can, you can tell that I'm still, still struggling with uh, what are the findings. <laughs> Ah, sorry. It's walking for transportation 150 minutes per week. Sorry about that. So it's pretty, that's a lot of walking, by the way, right? It just applying the current recommendations for the overall physical activity, we just use the highest cut point for walking. Well, it's just interesting that you're, you're talking about um, your hometown right. and um, all the urban planning that's going on, but overall it's lower levels of physical activity than in these other countries that have more disorganized... Exactly, because the it's a city that has a, uh, it's more uh, so the Gini index is much uh, smaller there, so the inequality is smaller, but the city is richer as well. So people use more cars, less transportation. In Bogota, if you have, I've never been to Cuernavaca, but in Bogota, people walk a lot, because for instance, in Bogota, 20% of the house house have cars, 20%. In Curitiba, 80% of the houses have cars. So that tells you that people can afford more to have cars. So they, they commute less by transportation. And plus, there's another problem. The transportation adds maybe four or five minutes of walking because it's so easy, easy to access there. So you don't have to walk more than five minutes to reach a bus uh, stop, for instance, in Curitiba. That's not a lot of walking in terms of 150 minutes. So that's another of the methodological issues we're dealing with the paper because the measure we are using here doesn't capture sh short bouts of activity. There are lots of issues that we still are struggling to understand the data, methodological and, and conceptual. <clears throat> uh, but another finding that I think is very interesting is, the, is another paper that uh, our colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Olga Sarmento from Los Andes University in Bogota, she has consistently found a positive association between access to public transportation and higher levels of activity. So that's unique because most of these studies, they don't show that. And plus, because in developing countries, the public transportation system is really important for commuting. So that's another uh, finding that it's not related to the IPEN studies, but just shows how complex is the environment within each city and how we should expand our understanding uh, by applying new methods and approaches. So what we, try to, we are trying to understand is how can we use evidence to influence practice? That's another question. That's the final question I have to address here now. And so we did something to to try to understand what are the priorities for researchers on the public health in Brazil and for practitioners in the public health in Brazil. So what are the hot topics for them? What is feasible and what is important? So we did this uh, study uh, a while ago, it was published last year, and we wanted to understand what are the research topics that are important or feasible among practitioners and researchers. So Ross Brownson is a co-author here, and he did the same study here in the U.S. Uh, maybe four or five years ago, I guess. So we found, we found five main areas. So you, you can see there, effectiveness and innovation, promoting physical activity through urban environment, community, 
health economics benefits, economic benefits, individual environmental correlates, and evaluation impact of future activity policies. Well, I want to I want you to see the number four, promoting physical activity through uh, urban environment active community. So, we did not provide this category. The category was provided by the the folks that we surveyed. So, practitioners and researchers. So, we did not provide any any example. This was totally qualitative approach. The first phase was totally open ended. So, we did not provide any any cues for that. Right? So that tells something already by itself. So they recognize this is a hot topic. But when we compare what is important for you, what is feasible. So what is important for practitioners, what is feasible for researchers. So if practitioners think it is important and researchers think it's feasible, then we have a channel of communication make us easier to, to do something, right, together. So, See, promoting physical activity through urban environment, active community, and social networks is very feasible for my colleagues, researchers in Brazil, and no important at all for practitioners. So we have two different planets. Uh, they are not even colliding. They are just orbiting in different galaxies, right? Um, so we have to build this bridge between practice and, and, and research. So there are many reasons that could explain that. One of the reasons I just showed, I showed recently, we don't have evidence on this area emerging from these places. So researchers th think this is feasible based on the experience they had from other countries. Not because they did that, but they, they saw that that was done. But we don't have anything that is important or contextualized for the Brazilian uh, environment. So maybe that's one of the reasons they they don't recognize the importance of that. So in public health in Brazil, the implementation of uh, policies and strategies, uh, at least for practitioners, is not an easy path for us to make environmental change. So we have to build this gap as well. So we, we are in the process of beginning to understand the environment and beginning to explore what are the interventions that work. But we have a huge <laughs> path. We have a long road to build these connections. So in conclusion, I think environment seems to matter in the world. I think that's not only uh, uh, theoretically driven, but uh, empirically driven as well. Uh, I think we need more international collaboration because we have so much to learn from each other in, in many ways. And I think it's doable. We are proving that it's doable. We can do something together using common methods. Nah. Nah. Sorry. So the pattern of development and investments matter for health as well. So the way the cities grow is going to affect uh, the, the citizens' health. So capacity building is, is still a need in low and middle income countries. Brazil has experienced a different, a different uh, ex uh, environment recently. Fortunately, we do have a good research environment compared to low and middle income countries, of course. And we do have good schools for most of the subjects we we need to develop, but most of the low and middle income countries, they don't have this, this situation. So there's a strong need for capacity building there. We need more studies in the context, especially the micro, micro features. We need to apply more observational measures. They can provide us a better uh, understanding of the context. But especially, you need to translate the evidence to inform policies and practice. So I think those are the topics that, uh, as a researcher, Coming from Brazil, uh, want, I want to try to contribute with my, my, my folks and colleagues in Brazil and with the population there uh, as well. So I know I covered the different, different areas, like some, some history, some, some evidence, some ideas, but I just wanted to share with you some of the thoughts I had uh, I've been developing uh, over the, the, the last few years about how to address built environment, social environment, and how we can try to make change in the society to make it better. Of course, with my experience for, from Brazil. Thank you so much for your kind attention and for understanding your understanding with my limit, limitations with English. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you.
so I, I may have misheard this, but it seemed like there was an, a very different relationship between urbanization and low income and uh, low and middle income countries compared to what we see here. I'm saying the more urbanization here, the more you tend to see at least light or you know moderate activity in, in adults. So is that is, did I hear that correctly? That with increased urbanization and in, in these other countries, that you're actually seeing lower levels. If we compare the, the prevalences of inactivity and the percentage of urbanization, you're going to see a very good correlation. Mm -hmm. But we don't have individual level evidence on that. We just have like aggregate uh, information on that. So okay. I, I see a, a, a connection between them. Although most of the peer review literature don't show that. They measure urbanization at the local level mm -hmm. and they compare more urbanized, less urbanized areas. They don't find a very clear pattern on that. We found some papers showing that, but most of the papers they were conducted in, in high-income countries. But we don't have any paper that has examined urbanization levels across country. Silence, silence is a good or is a bad sign? <laughs> I just wanted to ask quickly, I think you kind of uh, spoke to it when you were talking about the last 40 years of planning in Curitiba, but I mean, I really believe that in the US, it's, it's happening slowly, but that people are, you know, in the real world, so to speak, are, are really coming around to the importance of urban planning and the built environment, social environment, and all of that for various health outcomes, including physical activity. I think, really think it's the next sort of great public health movement that we're going to have. Um, is that sort of, do you get that feeling in Latin America or in Brazil? I mean, maybe it's a little different in Curitiba where it's well organized from the way you make it sound, but I mean, do, are people on board for this kind of change and this kind of improvement? Policymakers and... I think researchers are more more open for that now in Brazil than policymakers or, or, or plan, urban planners. The thing that is affecting the change in the urban planning in Brazil, I think the most important thing over the last 10 years is the car ridership that is increasing a lot, car ownership as well, so the traffic congestion is becoming a major problem and the injuries related to traf traffic accidents as well. So I would say this is more appealing for them than the other health issues, even more appealing than pollution and, and physical inactivity or obesity. So I would say the physical activity, obesity, nutrition, uh, let's say obesity and physical inactivity connections between them and, and urban environment are not being addressed at all. But the major problem, as I, as I mentioned, is just uh, the, the amount of cars we have in the streets. It's just exploding because people now can afford to, to buy cars. And they're ready to buy a new car than to use uh, the public transportation system. So it is happening not only in Brazil, but in other countries as well. No, I was just a reviewer for the paper because oh, the, who, so you know it. Who, who's the person who has actually the team that was leading the paper was a team of five researchers mm -hmm. and the, the rest of us, the 25 of us that was not leading the paper was just doing the reviews for the paper. Well, that, uh, that's a good point, and there are some methodological limitations on the paper. One is that most of the uh, all the surveys that we were included in the in the pool analysis, they use self reports, mm -hmm. and self reports they do not capture short bouts of activity. 
So that's one of the issues we have to, to, to consider, that the amount of uh, physical activity that you gain from the transportation uh, is not reflecting the overall physical activity level, which was the outcome that was used here. So that's probably one of the limitations there. It's year. Like yeah, it's 0. 0. 0.62 years. Yeah. You oh, gain, you gain. No, you gain, you gain 0. 0.62 years oh, for, of life. Yeah. But anyway, the question, the question is important. It, it, that, that's one of the limitations for the paper. Well, so. I was going to say the other thing is that you see the big jump going from completely sedentary to something. You don't see the big jump going from something to, you know, to running. I'm saying right. Getting 150 minutes of walking is the big win. Yeah. You know, the running the marathon gets you a little bit. Well, I had this great line of using, oh, like, oh, like, oh, so <laughs> Germans are moving more, and that means they'll be kids. No, it means that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just, uh, for Germany, I guess, it's point twenty-five to point forty-nine years of uh, you, you gain in as in your life hmm. any other questions for Rodrigo so I'll let you know one other thing that might be relevant to you the um, your pictures of the uh, favelas with the colors with the painting projects that have been there have actually been introduced to some children here in Colombia huh. because the USC art has something called um, Young Artist Workshops that they do twice a year. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's an art program after school that you can sign your kids up mm -hmm. for. And last spring, the theme was Think Big. And they used a video about this painting project in the favelas to sort of motivate the children about how big you can mm -hmm. think. And they came up with a oh, beautiful mural as a result. That's really cool. Um, so, so some Colombian, well, South Carolina Colombian children have seen <laughs> Interesting. Uh, that's a project. This project is is uh, being presented by the World Bank in many many opportunities. So I think it's being well advertised. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for your presentation, Rodrigo. Very much thank you, Wendy.